Um, so there was a kind of, there was a darkness and my, my best friend who lived across the street from me, her family was very dysfunctional and we just kind of stuck together. We just were back and forth. We, we, we were like a melded unit. I honestly don't know what would have happened to me had we not, had we not had each other. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I talk with fascinating, talented, and influential guests who reflect on the adventures and challenges of aging and who are living their lives with vibrance and purpose. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist, writer, and Zestful Ager. And if you like this podcast, you'll love my companion course, Zestful Aging, Simple and Sustainable Habits for Health and Longevity. You'll have access to what I've learned from being a psychotherapist for 30 years and the latest research on what habits really matter and contribute to vibrant aging. Find out more at NicoleChristina.com. Last week, we spoke with Academy Award winner, Melissa Burton. She won her award for her documentary on educational justice. That is that the concept that girls also uh, need to receive an education. And her film is on Netflix now. It's called Period, End of Sentence. I think you will really enjoy that interview. And next week, we speak with Stacy Feintuck, who is the blogger and writer behind The Widow Wears Pink. Stacy was a stay-at-home mom in New Jersey with two kids when her husband, who was only 48, died of a massive heart attack. And it's a really lovely interview about how we're called upon to change everything we know about our lives. Well, I have my Jack Russell Terrier Sparky beside me, my coffee in my hand, so let's begin. We have a real treat for you today. I am going to be speaking with Liz Scott, who's been a practicing psychologist for 40 years, and she's had numerous stories published in literary journals, and her memoir, This Never Happened, was recently released. Her memoir describes her life with two very difficult parents and her realization in her 30s that their Martha Stewart lifestyle was a farce. The family was actually from strong Jewish roots. Originally from New York City, Liz currently lives and works in Portland, Oregon. Welcome to the show, Liz. Thanks, Nicole. It's so great to be with you. I'm so excited to talk to you about this book. Um, and then I have a lot of questions, but let's start with just, uh, why don't you tell us about the book and what made you decide to write about your very painful history? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, the book in some to some significant degree, is about um, an effort to try to answer some of the very, very many unanswered questions of my childhood. Um, my parents were, to say the least, neither one of them was forthcoming. We got stonewalled at every turn trying to get information. So um, it, I set out really as a sort of exploration 
And I've been thinking about it for, well, decades, really, and um, trying to get my arms around how to approach this story. And I think, um, frankly, I had to wait until both of my parents had died before I could start writing in earnest. Um, <laughs> so I started writing this maybe, maybe six years ago. Was this percolating all along um, and, and, and you were thinking, well, it's going to happen sometime or was it a different process? Well, one of the complicating factors is that I have spent most of my life trying to not be my mother. And my mother, um, amazingly complicated woman that she was, um, always wanted to be famous and she wanted to be famous as a writer. So <laughs> I think that became a sort of unconscious block to me. I never, ever considered writing. It just felt like uh, that's, I wasn't going to go there. Were you always a talented writer, though, a growing no, up? No, no, I wasn't. I, I wasn't. I wasn't. Um, I can't, I've come to it very late, much later in my life, and um, I think it was just a big block to me. I never wanted to try it. I never wanted to go there. It just felt like too much like being like her. I think I felt freed up to find this kind of creative expression. Uh, well, two things. After she died, for one, and also after I'd done enough of my own psychological work to recognize that I was a separate person than she was and that I was not going to be, become her, even if I was a writer. <laughs> I see. I see. So the idea is how can I do this in a way that is about what I need to do and sort of uh, free from what she needed to do in her life? Yes, exactly. And um, uh, I certainly had no motivation about being famous. Mm. Which which was helpful. <laughs> I see, I see. So you use the word stonewalling, Liz, but I think you're going to have to tell our audience, mm. uh, give some examples, because they are so off the charts. I mean, you're not talking about like, you know, what year did I get married? Or, you know, was I engaged before? You're talking about the most basic information that you know, kind of makes us who we are. So, so true. Um, I recall in the book that at least once or twice when I was a child, I remember asking my mother if she had any brothers or sisters because we never met a single relative, not a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, nothing. And when I asked her if she had any brothers or sisters, her answer was, I don't remember. Mm. And... Um, I guess you'd have to know my mother to understand why that became why that was an acceptable answer, but it, there was just no point in pushing her when she didn't want to go anywhere. And so that was a signal saying this is off limits. That's right. That's right. And then uh, you know, any time over the years where when my sister and I would try to ask her for information, we got stonewalled that way too. And then the final event when she was literally the day she died in the hospital, she called me over to her bedside and said, if you have any questions, now's the time to ask, uh, which was sort of, I was gobsmacked. I tried asking very non-threatening questions, like um, I knew that she was an immigrant to this country, uh, which I found out much later, and um, I asked her what kind of a place she lived in when she 
first came here and she wouldn't answer that. She just closed her eyes and wouldn't say anything. And I tried several times and uh, with no luck. And um, the last words she spoke were um, lilacs. I remember lilacs. Mm. And that, that was it. That was the information she was willing to give. Mm. And it, it was a sort of a similar thing with our father who um, left our home when I was about 10. And then we found him, my sister found him um, when we were in our early 30s. And uh, he also got very, actually got very angry when we asked for any information from him. So that was another stonewalling. Mm. I, you know, I'm trying to think of sort of the growing up um, in our country and, you, you know, you describe the neighborhood and your friend, your best friend and all this. And I'm thinking, you know, the normal things that are talked about, like, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? Who's coming? Oh, my aunt's going to take me on this trip or my cousin. None of that was part of your experience. It's so true. And I, I have one of the qualities that I've lived with for my whole life is this kind of sense of rootlessness, a kind of untethered feeling. And, and I think it's because of that, there was just no sense of uh, a line that we were attached to. It felt like we were kind of plopped down on the earth, you know, just, um, individuals with no tribe with right? no tribe no tribe no tribe which we know i mean so you know slight tangent here but humans really need to feel a sense of belonging that's that's in our that's baked in i think and that's you, so true yes you did not have that i mean that's a survival uh skill i think that's absolutely feel. right yeah i totally agree and so you're going along in your suburban New York lifestyle, very waspy, doing all the very waspy kinds of things <laughs> with horses and Protestant church going. Am I remembering this correctly? You are absolutely correct. <laughs> and a particular kind of dresses. Yes. <laughs> you were you were doing the whole thing and did you have a sense that something didn't quite feel right? Or did it all seem, you know, f that part seemed fine to you? Well, nothing quite felt right. First of all, um, there were the outer trappings of where I grew up. This was in Fairfield County, Connecticut, outside mm -hmm. of New York City. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it's a lot of privilege and a lot of, you know, outwardly a lot of... Um, a lot of beauty and all of that, but there was so much darkness. Um, a lot of my friends' parents were alcoholics, and there was it was a whole kind of ice storm thing with key parties and yes. people having affairs with everybody, and mm -hmm. um, so there was a kind of there was a darkness. And my my best friend who lived across the street from me, her family was very dysfunctional, and we just kind of stuck together. We just were back and forth. We, we were like a melded unit. And um, we really grew each other up. Um, and so at some level, we, I mean, I think we even talked about this. We knew that was wrong. We knew that, we knew that, there, that this is not the way it should be. There were no grownups there to really guide us and um, model good behavior for us. So, yeah, I mean, at a general level, I knew that things were not as they should be. 
And having a best friend sounds like this dear, dear friend across the street you write about, sounds like she was one of the keys in your ability to be resilient in this life. I honestly don't know what would have happened to me had we not had we not had each other. Mm -hmm. I honestly do not know. And I just was back east um, with a book and uh, stayed at her place in Connecticut with her. And, uh, you know, we both feel the same way. It's, it's, um, we really saved each other's lives. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of this, this idea teaching each other, yes, you're lovable. Yes, you're deserving. Yes, yes, I see you. All of that kind of validation that you're really supposed to get from, from mom. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's one of the real challenges of uh, kids that have narcissistic parents, too, is that um, you know how they talk about how a child's sense of themselves comes initially from the, the mother's gaze and how, the, how, how you're reflected back in your mother's eyes. And, you know, with a narcissist, that ju- you, you become the mirror. The child is the mirror then. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, my friend and I, we really had to, we did turn to each other for our sense of ourselves and our sense of our worth. And, you know, we loved each other dearly. And um, that felt very stabilizing. Are there any other uh, uh, parts of this that you see as um, life-saving? You talk, it was her name, Diane? Is that Donna. 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 <laughs> and besides Donna, were there other um, pieces or people or relationships or beliefs or any of that that you think kind of kept you um, sane, kept you going forward? Yeah. Um, ironically, my mother's best friend, Martha, um, was the most wonderful, loving um, validating, encouraging person you could imagine. I don't know. I can't imagine. I don't understand how they were friends. I don't get Mm. it. I don't get it. But, um, Martha was a big influence. I always knew I could talk to her. I always knew that she would listen deeply. Um, so she was an important person. And then, um, I took piano lessons for many years, over a dozen years with this woman named Ruth Steinkraus. And, Yes, I studied piano with her, but <laughs> I think more importantly, when I would go to her studio, I, I just felt so emotionally supported. It was a, um, she approached music in a way where um, she wanted me to have access to my emotional experience to the music. So she was really focused in on that. So that felt like a real haven to me to to visit her once a week. Mm-hmm. I think about um, your situation, and it's like you made this patchwork quilt, mm-hmm. um, and you sort of sewed it together yourself. Mm-hmm. Whereas what we really hope for is something out of whole cloth that has integrity and you know is sturdy. But you made something, you patched it together yourself, and you've been able to survive this. And then the next part, which is frankly even more bizarre. <laughs> is so you're living this Fairfield County life, which is 
as you say, very privileged, very wealthy, people commuting to the city, just um, all of that. And then as an adult, you find out this was all a sham. Mm-hmm. All a sham. Um, both of my parents were either disowned by their parents or they disowned their parent, their families. I, we never could figure that out. We never got the answers to that. Both of them were 100% Jewish. What we came to find out after, um, I think it was after my mother died, I'm not sure of the timing here, was that not only did my mother have siblings, she was the youngest of, I think, eight or nine Mm. that came from a family that, this might be apocryphal, I don't know, but it was traced back like 33 generations of rabbis, back Mm. to like King David or something absurd like that. So all that... um, heritage and history and lineage was, you know, unknown to us. And, oh my goodness, it was really, really something. And since my mother was the youngest, by the time I started trying to find people, they had all died. Mm -hmm. We did, um, just through various circumstances, I have connected with a first cousin, through my father's side of the family, which is a wonderful blessing. And um, we've become really great friends. So that's a, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But even was it your mom's brother who wrote you a letter? Um, that, that was her, that was her nephew. That was her, her nephew. Mm-hmm. Totally unhelpful. Totally unhelpful. What was that? <laughs> you got me. I mean, it was the most ridiculous thing. I, I like these crazy stories, these like fairy tale family stories. I, you know, totally unhelpful. Totally. It was hard to even understand what the point was. Exactly. Just like these flowery kind of phrases, um, you know, glued together that you think are going one way and then they go another <laughs> way. I'm glad to know that you have that impression, too. <laughs> so it's really interesting, too, because, well, there's so many things that I'm curious about, but the identity shift. Yeah. But then also, okay, so now you find out you're Jewish, not a little Jewish. Not a little. Not a little. You are the real deal, <laughs> and you have relatives going back to the beginning, something that someone would be really proud of. You didn't have the opportunity to really embrace that. Exactly. That's the first, well, there are many problems. But the other thing I was going to say is that there was no help. Yeah. Like you even tried, okay, you have these parents and you really tried to reach out. You tried different relatives. You tried, and, and what you got back was just so flimsy. Yeah. Flimsy, and it's like everybody was trying to avoid the truth is what it mm-hmm. felt like. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of the ways I came into my life, I think one of the reasons I became a psychologist is because I got so goddamn wedded to the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, it just mm-hmm. became like the highest principle to me. Mm-hmm. And um, everybody around me in this family was just not, you know, they weren't going to go there. They didn't, and, and, and I know we understand as clinicians, they don't have the capacity to go right. there. But still, as a kid, 
you need that. I mean, you need some minimal, <laughs> you know, minimal sort of stability and identity. And it was just not there. It's true. It's true. And I really spent so much of my young to mid midlife flailing, really flailing around. And, you know, a lot of that took the form of men <laughs> mm -hmm. um, trying to develop a strong sense of myself flailing around. And uh, I think it's because I didn't have that grounding. Mm -hmm. mm. Hey, Zestfilagers. Last year, I attended the International Federation on Aging's Global Conference in Toronto, and they've announced the 15th Global Conference on Aging for Niagara Falls, Ontario, from November 1st through 3rd, 2020. Zestful Aging Podcast is a proud partner for this conference, and I encourage you to all consider attending. The conference features prominent experts presenting and discussing critical issues within the field of aging. So head on over to ifa2020.org to learn more. And I hope to see you in Niagara Falls in November. So, you know, as therapists, one of the things we think a lot about, well, especially now with social media is, you know, how much do I disclose? You know, I, I, I say I grew up in a program. In my program, it was very clear, you do not personally disclose anything unless you are sure it is for the client and not for you. And um, I, I don't know if that's old fashioned. Mm -hmm. um, but you have clients now who presumably know an awful lot about your deepest, darkest secrets. And I'm just wondering how that's played out for you. I think it's such an interesting topic, Nicole. Um, I mean, I, I definitely agree that I wouldn't share personal information to, unless I felt absolutely sure it was in the client's best interest. That said, this book is out there in the world. And it's not like I'm I'm certainly not advertising it to clients. You're not handing it I'm out not, at the end of session. I'm not <laughs> handing it out. But so far, I've had two clients that have come across it. And I'll just tell you this brief story. This one client who I, is a, a man in his early 80s who I'd seen on and off for a long time, who's somebody who had a very, very difficult childhood, but was one of these people whose attitude was, well, they were doing the best they could, you know, People have, a, have it a lot worse, and so he never really got in touch with the pain of his childhood. He read my book, and he came in, and um, he said two things to me. He said, well, um, I thought you were evolved. <laughs> and um, so I was really, really happy to disabuse him of that notion mm. and to talk about how my belief is that, you know, we're all mucking around doing the best we can. And I have a certain set of skills, um, including being able to listen deeply and pick out themes that enabled me to be a good therapist. But that doesn't mean I'm evolved. I, I told him I hoped I was evolving, but that I didn't think there was a finish line. So that seemed to reassure him. And then the next thing he said to me was that he pointed out a couple of the chapters in the book and he said, well, those don't seem like a good enough reason to write a whole book. Hmm. And, um, you know, Nicole, it was so interesting to me because 
in that moment, I was so clear that it was not about me. It was, yes. a, it was about his own lack of empathy for himself as a child uh, that he was projecting onto me. And I, I reflected that back to him and he burst out crying, something he'd never done before. Mm-hmm. Um, really started to, to own some of the sort of rightful pain he was entitled to. Uh, and so it was an amazing experience. It was really... Well, it was more like a Rorschach test for really, him, it, you know? It was. It exactly was. Exactly was. So I, you know, I, I think it's helpful for my clients to know that I don't see myself as a perfect person and that I'm willing to um, own my limitations and not feel shame about my past. Mm-hmm. Um, I before I agreed to put this book out in the world, I really had to come to peace with some clients might read it. I might lose some clients. There you go. Mm-hmm. And, um, but that I, I believe in this way of being in the world. I'm not ashamed of any of this stuff. I've, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not ashamed of being a flawed person. And I, that's something I would hope for my clients. So it's interesting because, you know, you get two therapists talking. Yeah. I wonder how our audience is. But I know. Thinking, you know, right? <laughs> Writing it was one level of healing, and then bringing it out into the world was another level of healing and saying, this isn't about me. Right. It's not that I didn't deserve it. It's that, you know, that was the luck of the draw. And I was born into a family that didn't know the first thing about being parents or humans really right exactly and I had I I was at a reading uh did a reading a a couple of weeks ago and this young woman came up to me after the reading and she said I I'm so grateful to hear this I thought I was the only one who had a narcissistic mother Mm. and I said I said oh honey I I wish I'd known that because I would have asked people in the audience to raise their hand and you would have really felt like you had company. So I, you know, I feel like, like I said, I didn't start, I didn't write this in order to be famous. I didn't write this in order to make money. I I think that the fact that, that it might um, help and touch some people is so gratifying to me. Mm. So gratifying. And your children have read it. Yes, I'm they have. Sure. They, have. Uh, <laughs> they love it. They they're wonderful. They've come to all the readings, and they're they're really. I mean, I don't talk too much about them in the book. I um, mean, you know, I don't think I. I think I hardly mention them at all in the book. It was really about my own personal journey and my parents. Um, you know, I think I talk about the challenges of being a mom myself and not having a good role model, but I don't talk about them individually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very little. I was just aware that you had adult children mm-hmm. and curious because I think part of it was that you really tried to be a good mom. And by, you know, one of the things you tried to do was not sort of vent to them mm-hmm. or, you know, kind of bring them into some of the darkness that you were trying to navigate and so I was just curious how, like, it, they reacted knowing you as a mom and then sort of seeing mm-hmm. uh, the reality of what you had been through. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been interesting. I certainly have not uh, 
they have heard a lot of these stories before, so they knew the information. I think what I've done my whole parenting life with them was make a real effort not to be so needy that I needed them for my emotional, to be my emotional support. Mm-hmm. My sister and I felt so burdened by that with our mother. Mm. So uh, it, it's, you know, while my kids had the information, I have never like, you know, I, I don't look to them as my main source of emotional support. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could you tell the story of the black coat? <laughs> because that is... You know, I've heard a lot of stories doing this work for 30 years, but that should, there should be, that excerpt should be right in the DSM. I'm telling you. As the ultimate narcissistic um, predicament. I'm telling you. Yeah, so my mother and I were shopping. She had come, I was living in Cleveland, Ohio at the time, and she was living in California. She came to visit me. I needed a winter coat. We went shopping because it was, that was an easy way to spend time with her. And I found this perfect black coat that was my size and on sale. And I tried it on and she said, let me buy that for you. And we went back and forth and back and forth because I was very clear by that point that any quote gift unquote had a big price tag attached to it. Mm-hmm. So it was, yeah. So you, you knew already as I knew already. to be care- caution. <laughs> exactly. All the red flags were flying all over the place. And so I, you know, I went back and forth and back and forth. And she finally says, you never let me do anything for you, please, 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 please. Okay. Mm. Oh, that's really nice. So we go up to the counter. She gets the sales slip. She looks at the price and she goes, geez, that's the sale price. You know, like I said, again, we went round and round about who's going to buy it. So he finally signs it. And as the coat's going into the bag, she says, wait, let me try it on. Mm. So I'm five, seven. I, I wear a size eight. My mother, I don't think she was five five feet tall. I think she was under five feet tall. She mm-hmm. wore maybe a size two. So she tries this coat on and she looks ridiculous. She's she, she it looks ridiculous. It looks, it looks like, like, a like a monk. It does. It does. It looks like a monk. It like a monk. It was ridiculous. She was swimming in fabric. And what she says is, I love this coat. It's perfect. Oh. Oh. So the saleswoman call we were at Nordstrom's I think the saleswoman calls every other store in the country to find out if there's one in her size and there's not and so you know now we go back and forth about who's going to have the coat and I and I'm saying like just take the coat if you want the coat and she's going no I want to buy it for you I said I'd buy it for you and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and finally she says you take the coat I want you to have it so fine I we get in the car we're, we're driving home and she says I love that coat. I really, really, really want that coat. And, you know, I think I read that chapter in a reading and somebody asked me what happened to the coat. And I said, I don't know. I don't, I don't even remember what happened mm. to the damn coat. I, I mean, if I kept it, I probably donated it to Goodwill. Mm. Because it was so tainted by then. So tainted. So tainted. Mm. It was such a struggle. It was so painful and infuriating. Mm. yeah and and she couldn't I mean there was something about her not allowing you to have this beautiful coat and look nice in it and have your own special moment finding this coat that you really liked on sale 
Right. She, I think it was two things that she want, she didn't want to buy it, but she wanted credit for buying it is mm-hmm. one part. And then I think that there was a kind of competitive, she didn't want me to have something that she couldn't have mm-hmm. thing aspect to it too. And um, so, I mean, you know, bless her heart, as they say, mm-hmm. because I, 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 you know, I find her a very sad and tragic figure. She was so talented and smart and um, creative and just so burdened by these demons that she never was able to purge. So talk a little bit about how you have found a way to forgive Mm -hmm. and have compassion because that, you know, we all know that we're supposed to do that and it's good for our mental health and and all the religions say, you know, forgive and all this, but it is not that easy. I'll say. When you're so wounded. Uh, totally. And, you know, um, well, with my mother, it was so hard to be in her presence and find that place of grace, you know, because she was so infuriating in so many ways. When I was not with her, I could access compassion. When I was Mm -hmm. not talking to her, visiting her, I could Mm -hmm. access it. But I'm telling you, the minute we were in each other's presence, I could, you know, maybe go into the other room and count to 10 and remind myself that this is, she's a flawed human being in spades. But I have to say, sadly enough, that it's been since her death, which was in 2005, that I'm really living in a 90% compassion place about her. Mm, I see. You actually needed a physical separation, like a permanent physical separation to have enough space to, to, to be able to do this. It's true. And I find that so sad. I just find it so, so sad. Mm. That's something my sister and I have talked about how, how she made it so hard for us to love her. Mm -hmm. She just made it so hard. And of course we wanted to, because kids want to, you know, and it's, it's natural to want to love your parent. And, um, it, it just, she was, utterly infuriating to be around and Mm. um, so yeah physical space when she was alive like I'd have to go in the other room or be in another state Mm. Um, and then her death finally um, and I'm relieved that I live primarily in a compassionate state toward her now Mm -hmm. to see her as a woman who was suffering yes yes exactly yes I definitely believe she was a woman that was suffering Yeah, Yeah, because nobody who's at peace does the kind of things that she did. Absolutely. And there must have been such a big civil war going on internally. I mean, I I just, again, I think as I think about myself as a therapist, it's one of the reasons why I don't feel shame about my own struggles or my own past is that I want, I don't want to live with a civil war like that roiling inside me, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I wish that for my clients too. You know? Do you, do you think therapists are more effective if they have experienced mm-hmm. 
these kind, maybe not to the extent that you have, but these kinds of profound losses, is it important in, you know, as part of being a good therapist to have actually experienced some of these things? I feel a little shy about saying yes. <laughs> um, I'll just say for me, I know that these have been tempering experiences for me and have um, uh, that it's, I think, easier for me to see and validate and experience the pain of other people, whether it's, you know, some major kind of thing or the, the minor kinds of pains that we all have. So I think that my experiences for me have made me a more empathic person and, and also more um, willing to sit with somebody with their pain. I, I don't find pain off-putting or surprising. Mm, I see. It doesn't scare you. It does not scare me. That's a great way to say it. And mm -hmm. I think for some people that don't have a lot of experience with pain, that they are more scared by that, um, being in the presence of deep pain. I'm not scared of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds really important. And I'm sure your clients can feel that. I hope so. And they know that they can say anything mm -hmm. because, you you know, you... I'm sure that you give off a real deep acceptance. I hope um, I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So can you um, give a little bit of maybe advice or thoughts um, for people who have had experiences with parents who are we can, you know, narcissistic, or we'll say extremely difficult. Um, what would you like to say about how to get through that? Yeah. Well, um, get the th to a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think one of the challenges that's sort of universal is having to um, separate the past from the present. And because until we do that, we have internalized messages from our past. And when you have um, a dysfunctional family or parents that are not par parents they should be, you internalize messages about yourself that you have mm -hmm. to later on unwind and realize that you're the author of your own story, mm -hmm. that you were given a story, you were handed a script when you were born and you memorized it so it becomes automatic and you believe that's you, the script you were given. And so we have this opportunity as adults to rewrite that story and, and to write our own story. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, I do, therapy is an amazing way to do that. I mean, of course it's just a means to an end, but um, I think that's the general principle that, and probably a task that is, like I say, fairly universal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think of it sometimes in terms of templates, hmm. um, that you get this template and you kind of are operating from this template and then you say, you know, does this template make sense? Exactly. Like, I don't have to use this. Exactly. There are a lot of other ones that are more accurate. Um, and what would that look like? Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so it's like, who am I that's a separate person from what I was taught? Um, or the, the beliefs that I thought I that I thought were mine, mm -hmm. and uh, so it's. I mean, it's. I think it's uh, 
can be a rock chipping process, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Slow and yeah. not always super comfortable. Totally. But ultimately, you're really leaving us with a hopeful message. Well, I think it's very hopeful. I mean, I think we're all, if you're somebody that's interested in personal growth, that um, you have the tools available to you. You know, you can do this. You can, um, it's possible. It's not easy. Like you say, it can be painful and and long and hard, but it's worth it. And I don't, again, don't think that there's a finish line where you get to and spike the ball and do the victory uh. dance, you know. <laughs> I think, and you're evolved. And you're evolved. You get the you get the certificate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so good. We're, you know, we get a chance to move along in this, and uh, I think it's very helpful. And I think it's possible, totally mm. possible for anybody that wants to do it. <laughs> well, I want to say that I loved your book, and I loved the unusual format. Mm. I mean, you it's you put some things in there that are almost like a scrapbooky. Mm-hmm kind of feel. And one of them I just wanted to share with the audience, you um, included uh, your stepmother had sent you some um, memorabilia, I guess, from your dad. And one of them included a receipt from CVS for deodorant. I mean, isn't that the wackiest thing? She after he died, she sent my sister and me these quote scrapbooks Mm-hmm. Well, they're, we're just full of the most insane parking tickets. Park, it's just crap. I mean, uh-huh. I, I, I don't know how anybody would think that that would be something they'd want. I, I mean, would... right, <laughs> right. Yeah, and um, just it, 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 it's got it really has a unique voice. Oh, thank the you. um you know the style in which you write, the it, it's very spontaneous, it's very accessible. It's um you, the way you have your chapters. What, am I remembering one of the chapters just has like a few words? I think there are two chapters that have <laughs> one word. Oh. <laughs> And I'm guessing it was a profanity. <laughs> it should have been. It should have been. It should have been if it, it wasn't. Been. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, well, I appreciate well, that. Yeah, it was uh, really unusual. And um, I, I think people really need to take a look at it. Where where can they find your book, Liz? Well, um, so I'm in Portland, Oregon, um, mm-hmm. home of the famous Powell's Bookstore, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, Nirvana. Um, (laughs) so, I mean, I don't know what other bookstores it's in. It's certainly on Amazon and it's it's on the Powell's bookstore website too. And, um, so, um, definitely on Amazon though, too. And the book is called This Never Happened. Correct. Okay. And, um, can people find out more about you on your website? They can. And, um, the website is www.liz-scott.com. Okay. It's in the process of getting a facelift, so it'll be uh-huh. it'll be gorgeous so, ah. soon. Right now, it's not so gorgeous, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of information on it. So, and there are ways to get the book too. There's a, a link to various ways to buy the book from the publish directly from the publisher too is another way. So, um, so there's a lot of information there, and uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to have visitors there. That's that's wonderful. <laughs> that's great. Well, it has been such a delight. I feel as though I have 
a hundred more questions. I wanted to talk about identity <laughs> and all it like, how do you find your writing voice? I think we may have to have a, you know, a, a second, second um, interview when things are, um, you know, you've, you've gone out and done your speaking and come back and, and maybe we can get together again, because it really is uh, a very unusual and, and, and tender book. And I, I think it, it's very touching that people will very much appreciate it. That's so kind of you. Thank you so much, Nicole. And I would love to chat again. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. In this phase of our lives, we're more aware that our time is precious, and we certainly don't want to waste it taking care of stuff that we no longer need, left over from a life that we are no longer living. We know we would feel better with less clutter and more open space, but we don't know how to get there. If this sounds familiar, I'd love you to check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer, Carrie Luteran. This course is different than others you may have tried because we give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and tools to help you face the overwhelm and feelings that come up when you're going through your clutter. It's practical and realistic, and the lessons are short and punchy and very manageable, but it has the power to change your life. We all deserve to live in a peaceful home without the chaos of too much stuff. Find out more at NicoleChristina.com. And next week, we speak with Stacy Feintuck, who is the blogger and writer behind The Widow Wears Pink. Stacy was a stay-at-home mom in New Jersey with two kids when her husband, who was only 48, died of a massive heart attack. And it's a really lovely interview about how we're called upon to change everything we know about our lives. And uh, it's about identity and really finding the strength to persevere. Uh, she also is very funny and t talks about her experience with hot yoga. I think you'll really like this interview. So see you then. <laughs> <laughs>